on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Irokti, a yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestian Echo. Vientolum againom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. A warning for listeners. Today's episode of the Indo-Daily contains references to sexual abuse and misconduct that some listeners may find upsetting. Today on the Indo-Daily, the Irish Vice King who wants his prostitution ring to be forgotten. Carlo native Thomas Carroll ran a multi-million euro prostitution network which involved trafficking Nigerian women into Ireland and forcing them to work as prostitutes all over the country. These women were subjected to abuse, intimidation and even voodoo rituals to trap them into a life of sex slavery. Now, Carol wants his crimes to be forgotten. I'm Fianon Sheehan, and today on the Indo Daily, I'm joined by Irish Independent Legal Affairs Editor Shane Phelan and Irish Independent Reporter Tabitha Monaghan to discuss how criminals are seeking to conceal their past misdemeanours. Shane, we have the operator of a prostitution ring basically using a legal device to hide information about their crimes from the public. How does this work? Yeah, so I suppose what we're talking about here is convicted criminals who were involved in a, a notorious prostitution ring using a European privacy law to effectively hide online articles about their crimes. So if you stick in certain search terms into, into Google in the past, they would have thrown up articles about this this prostitution ring. Now they might not. So the articles are still out there and they're available online. They're just a lot harder to find. And this is being done under privacy law, commonly known as the right to be forgotten, which has been around since 2014. Someone who did not have a minor criminal conviction was Thomas Carroll. Tell us who he is. 
Yeah, and I suppose it's the ability of people such as Thomas Carl to use the right to be forgotten that raises so many questions over its application. He ran a, a voice ring which had many, many brothels uh, throughout the island of Ireland, both north and south. And he operated these from a base in uh, in Wales and he spent a long time in prison because of these activities. Yeah, and we, we'll, we'll get into to more more detail on, on him uh, and his rap sheet. What, what do we know about his upbringing or his background in Ireland? Thomas John Carroll, or TJ, who was also known, he was he's originally from St Mullins in, in County Carlow. He would have lived in the Bagnallstown area, married, had three children, and in the mid-1990s, he established a business supplying bouncers to pubs and clubs around the southeast. But then he, uh, he began to branch into prostitution, and he joined forces with an established prostitution provider in the southeast and went on to build quite an empire for himself. Uh, all told, and these are details which came out in court, he would have run 35 brothels across the island of Ireland and using trafficked women and girls, some as young as 15. This was, you know, incredibly lucrative. At one stage, he was bringing in around 70,000 euros a week. He operated this from a base in Pembrokeshire in Wales. So from Wales, he was running a prostitution ring, a, a series of brothels basically a, across Ireland, and the issue was he was out of the reach of the Irish authorities, basically. Yes, but not out of the reach of the UK authorities. And he ended up being jailed by a Cardiff Crown Court in uh, 2010 for his crimes. And his daughter was particularly well-educated. Yeah, it kind of came out during the trial that she was a fourth-year law student when she was arrested. And uh, this was actually something that the judge who heard the case remarked upon said, look, you're intelligent and capable and, and should have followed your career in the law. He said that she couldn't shrug off responsibility for her actions. Now, in these court cases, we got a considerable amount of detail about the manner in which the women who were trafficked were treated. Can you can you tell us something about that? Yeah, I suppose it's to do with juju rituals. And these are quite chilling rituals they can involve the killing of chickens and 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 pushing women into coffins and putting the fear of death into them uh, sort of you know west african witchcraft but it's to do with with death and you know once these rituals have been performed these women feel they have a debt to somebody what seems to have been the case here was there would be women who would i suppose be looking for a better life and they might be told do you know what? Ireland's a great place and I know somebody and we can get you over there and we'll get you a job in a beauty salon or hairdressers or something like that. And the next thing, they're on the boat or they're on the plane, they're in Ireland and they're there and things are okay. There's all these other women with them and then something changes and they're told the job has fallen through but they still have this big debt to pay and, you know, they're in fear. They've, they've gone through this ritual so they feel indebted and the next thing they know, they're they're being bounced into prostitution to pay off the debt. Yeah, and, and you basically have intimidation, abuse be, being used. Here. We, as you said, a 15-year-old found herself in just this situation. Yeah, that's correct, Finan. Um I mean, some of these women were quite young, as you rightly say, one age just 15. I suppose it wasn't just West Africa. You know, some came from, from South America as well. Many of them not knowing that they would end up having to work as prostitutes. 
But this fifteen-year-old, uh, I suppose, like, it, it came out as as, as part of the the uh, the, the court process. Uh, she she was handed condoms, lingerie, and and a tube of cream, and and left to wait for instructions. You know, just absolutely horrifying stuff, really. What ultimately did the judge have to say uh, about Thomas Carroll uh, at the conclusion of this trial? Yeah, the judge in this case, uh, Judge Bitter, he described Thomas Carroll as a determined and forceful man and uh, said the strength of the evidence against him was overwhelming and, and he, he rejected assertions from Shamelia Clark's barrister that she was a mere receptionist for the business and I suppose also uh, would have rejected uh, attempts to minimise Thomas Clark's role in the operation as well. So tell us about the, the conviction and the sentence then that he received? Yeah, so Thomas Carley was jailed in 2010 for seven years. Uh, in 2012, he received another decade on top of that. And the reason for this was, was that uh, he refused to hand over almost 2.2 million from the proceeds of crime. But he's no longer in prison at this stage. He's, he has since been released. He'd built up a, a substantial body of assets then as well. Yeah, there's also information that came out during the, the during the trial. His assets included four houses in Wales, three houses in South Africa, four cars, including a Mercedes. And the judge ruled that these assets were purchased with the proceeds of crime. So what now? Thomas Carroll is out of jail and seeking to have this all swept away, basically. Yeah, so we know that the uh, these requests, which have been granted for articles to be delisted from Google search results that they can only have been made by one of three people. So Thomas Clark, uh, his daughter, or this lady, Shamelia Clark, his wife. Strictly speaking, we can't say that he himself has made these requests because we don't know. Google doesn't disclose that. But we do know that somebody in this voice ring, this family operated voice ring, has been making these requests and seeking to have these articles effectively erased from the public consciousness because they just are become so much harder to find when you can't find them on Google. Now, obviously, this has proven counterproductive because his name is, is back out there because you've highlighted this case. But there is a wider problem here, and that is you can't basically republish every single story that Google decides is no longer relevant. There's a very great many stories end up being delisted, and there's little or no public interest in highlighting those, you know, Thomas Carl isn't the first person previously involved in the vice operation to do this. We highlighted a case previously of uh, another convicted brothel keeper, Mark McCormick. He, he operated brothels in Dublin and his father, uh, Peter, would have founded the uh, the biggest sex worker website aimed at Ireland many years ago. And he has had articles uh, about him delisted. And there were questions about those. In fact, some of the articles which when we raised an issue with Google in relation to Mark McCormick, Google put their hands up and said, yeah, do you know what, you're right. Some of those articles shouldn't have been delisted and they were reinstated. Tabitha, the right to be forgotten, what is that and how does it work? So it goes back to 2014. So we have it about 10 years now. And it's an extension of the EU privacy laws. And essentially what it means is that after a certain period of time, a person can go to a search engine, Google, doesn't have to be Google, it can be DuckDuckGo, it can be Bing, whatever search platform that you're using. And you can request for an article about you to be delisted. And what that means is that if somebody, let's say Fiona Sheehan, you had an article that was written about you eight or nine years ago, and you don't want anybody to be able to find it through a search engine, 
you can request from Google that they delist it. So if somebody puts your name into Google, that article will no longer appear. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is scrubbed from the internet entirely. It just means that you won't be able to find it on a search engine. So if it's written by the Irish Independent or any other publication, it'll still be on their website. But for a lot of people, Google is the internet. So it'll be really difficult for somebody to be able to find that particular article if you've asked for it to be delisted. Now, what if the story concerned is actually in the public interest that that people do know about this person's past or, or a particular incident? And that's where this particular law is a little bit more difficult and becomes complicated. There are a number of exemptions. This right to be forgotten isn't an absolute right at all. And public interest is one of those exemptions. So if you are somebody who's in the public eye or if you're an elected representative especially, the bar is set far higher for you. So you could request it, but you might very well be denied it. It isn't an absolute right. Now, we have had incidents uh, in Ireland that have been highlighted a member of Sean Quinn of the Quinn Group, the, the former richest man in Ireland, one of his family went down this route. Yeah, so that was Niall McPartland, who was Sean Quinn's son-in-law, Kira Quinn's husband, um, a solicitor. He wrote to Google and requested that a number of articles be delisted. Irish Independent was one of the publications, as were many other publications, Irish Examiner, Irish Times, Irish News. And he requested that a number of articles that he was included in be delisted. So they could have been anything from him escorting members of the family into court when they were in and out involved in legal battles. There was one in particular about his wedding to Kira Quinn, which has allegedly cost one million euro, the total spend, and a 100,000 euro wedding cake. And that wedding cake was made in New York. It was boxed up into 20 different boxes, flown in here, reconstructed, beautiful, edible flowers, cost 100,000 euro. That was written about he was, obviously it was his wedding, so he was in the article. He requested that that be delisted. And it was, and it was successful. But what happened then was that the Irish Independent was alerted to the fact that they were delisted. And then it kind of had the opposite effect because they became public interest again and people started talking about them. So they weren't accessible through Google, but you were still able to find them. There was 131 Irish Independent articles delisted and I think about 20 photographs as well. Is this all a behind closed doors process? I mean, I presume Google are entirely transparent here and they go to the publisher and go, oh, would you mind awfully if we delist some of your articles that you've printed in the public interest? There have definitely been calls for Google or any search engine to be more transparent. Google says that they abide by the standards set by the courts of justice in the EU, but It's their job to decide whether or not that these things are delisted and the decisions aren't published either. So you won't know why they decided one way or the other. So it is actually entirely in their hands. And are publishers notified and is there an appeals process? Publishers are notified when a decision has been made and there is actually an appeals process for an individual publication for them to say whether or not they deem it suitable for being delisted. This practice... You know, it's it's Google interpreting a European Court of Justice ruling, but the delisting of articles, it has nonetheless come under fire. Criticism for groups who represent victims of prostitution, for example, have said, look, you're removing people's names here from the internet who have committed crimes. Yeah, so there is the public interest argument, but also that it 
minimizes visibility to certain issues as well. So there's Ruhama, who's a support group for women affected by prostitution and other forms of sexual exploitation. And they have said that the delisting of articles are unacceptable because it leads to less awareness of these issues. So if somebody Googles about a certain individual who's involved in a prostitution ring, for example, those articles aren't there anymore. And some people, let's say, if you haven't been around when those articles were first published, you mightn't be aware that it happened at all. So if you're coming to it 10 years later and you're trying to find context to something and that article might have been relevant to you, or in general, just knowing that this person has been involved in such crimes, it's really difficult. They've said that they're concerned that these articles, when they're delisted, it removes an important important deterrent for perpetrators and potentially enabling future sexual exploitation in Ireland. Now, is it fair that people can go down this route? Because already you could make the argument in the old days before the internet, your name appeared in the newspaper because you were up in court or you had a a, a criminal conviction or a tax default or you didn't pay your TV license, whatever the, the case may be. People knew about it because they read it in the paper. If they didn't read the paper, they didn't know about it. There was a record, but people would have to go down to the National Library to get a copy of it and know to look for it. Now you can just spend two seconds tapping it into the internet. So is it right that people should have this legal right that indeed just to be able to turn around and say, look, this was an event that happened in the past? Well, I think so. And part of the rule is that there has to be a certain amount of time that has elapsed before an article can be delisted. And there's also other criteria. It has to be irrelevant or it has to be excessive, for example. So to some extent, I think it's understandable that people will use this. You know, if you committed a minor crime, petty crime, and you did it a number of years ago, and now, let's say, eight, nine, ten years later, it's actually preventing you from getting a job. You'd see the argument for what someone saying, OK, I need that to be forgotten now. Like you said, it's so easy for people to find that information. You just need to search somebody's name and that'll all pop up again. So... It's a balancing act, isn't it, between people being allowed to move on with their lives in certain situations, but also there is, again, that public interest. But when you go back to Sean Quinn, when you look at those articles that were delisted, they provide context for what happened around Anglo-Irish Bank and the life that the Quinn family were leading. So there's a, a balancing act there between somebody being able to move on with their lives, but also public interest. And I think that's still, to this day, we're still grappling with. And my thanks to Tabitha Monaghan and earlier to Shane Phelan. I'm Fiannan Sheehan and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Gareth Mulhall, researched by Dave Hanratty, with sound by Gav Hennessy. If you've been affected by this podcast, you can find a list of helplines by searching Someone to Talk To at The Irish Independent. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel, 0818-715-715.